millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. I have a question. Are you feeling scandalous? Because we are. And we are, in fact, the Scandalmongers. And welcome to our podcast. My name is Phil Craig. And I have with me a fellow scandalmonger. And my name is Andrew Lenny. And we, well, what are we, Andrew? We're old mates. We are. I think a friendship that goes back almost 40 years, perhaps more. I think the teenagers. I do. I think actually between us, we've had 80 years in the business of telling stories. We have in different mediums, publishing, television, and now podcasts. And now podcasts. So um, I don't know if anybody listening to this podcast will remember the summer of 1978. Punk rock was in the charts. Saturday Night Fever was in the movies. And where were, where were you and I, Andrew? Can you remember? We were on a bus going around Europe listening to the Beach Boys. We were. We were 18. Oh, I'm sorry. I was 18. You were about eight. I was. Yes. A lot younger than you. <laughs> I do have some rather scandalous pictures of that experience, which I might leak onto Twitter at some point. Yes, we were both uh, winners of an essay contest showing some early literary Promise? Extraordinary. 50 of us went round Europe on a bus in five-star hotels, paid for by Barclays Bank. Thank you, Barclays. And um, it began this great friendship. And actually, sponsorship opportunities for Barclays Bank are available on this podcast. Yes, indeed. Or anybody, frankly. Kebab shops. Anything. <laughs> well, we'll see. Who wants to be associated with Scandal? Bet 365. Odd things. So, yes, so we met in 78, um, and then we both ended up at university. Uh, where I directed you for the very first time. Exactly, in a play, wearing shorts. And uh, these pictures are scandalous, and I think we definitely have to put them on Twitter. Andrew played a schoolboy covered in spots, being abused and shouted at and bullied. <laughs> Most about my, me, the director. Story of my life. <laughs> and then we've kept in touch ever since, really. Andrew's written many books, been a very important literary agent. I have been a bit of a hack in the world of television, but I've tried to be serious now and again as well. And I've also written four books, and I'm working on my fifth. And I think the reason why we've got together for this podcast, if I may speak for us both, is that over the years, our stories have often overlapped. 
I think we're interested in the same sort of things and we're interested in the hidden part of history that often is curated out or not part of the narrative. And I think also we're both prepared to push to find out more about these stories rather than to take the accepted view. That's a very good way of putting it. Um, and actually quite a lot of the work we have done has crossed over the same subjects. Um, World War II, the King Cora Boys Home Scandal, the Royal Family, Mountbatten. Spies. Mont spies. Yeah, and I think we both use the same sort. We're both trained historians. We both use documents. You're very skilled as an interviewer. And I think we, we feel that we can go that bit stage further than mo a lot of historians in telling the story and, and the real story. Well, actually, I think I noticed a bit of a spring in your step this morning, if I may say, Andrew. Um, it is the 16th of October. The government is about to fall but it's something also rather important happened in a story that you've been pursuing for many years. Yes. I mean, one of the books I wrote about was about Lord Mountbatten, and I uh, revealed the existence of two boys who claimed to have been abused by him in 1977. And this morning, another victim has emerged. There have been front-page stories in the newspapers about it, a very credible witness, and this, of course, backs up my research. So I think that's certainly one of the shows that we might look at in the future. I mean, for those who don't know, Andrew has been running an amazing campaign at some personal and financial cost, I should say, to get access to papers that have been closed off to him and to indeed anybody on the Mountbatten saga. Yeah, it's what I call the Mountbatten uh, diary scandal. And, and these were the private diaries and letters of Edwina and Dickie Mountbatten, the last viceroy and viceroy, viceroy of India. Uh, they were sold freely by the family, bought by the University of Southampton with public monies and under the acceptance of Lou Scheme for two and a half million pounds and then closed. Uh, and uh, historians haven't been able to look at them for the last 10 years. And I, through the Information Commissioner, got a decision they should be released. They then challenged that decision, and we've now had to go through the courts. But the result is that 30,000 pages of their diaries have now been released, 99%. But as you say, at a huge financial cost. That's why I'm doing the podcast. <laughs> well, I'll buy the coffees next <laughs> time. Oh, no, actually, anybody who, who cares about this, and, and I think actually many of you should, can, uh, can find a way of helping Andrew meet some of the huge costs he's taken on board. I'm sure he'd appreciate it. Um, um, apart from that scandal, of course, our work has touched on all sorts of areas where we've had shared interests. Um, funnily enough, um, I did an awful lot of work on the biography of Diana, which is something else we're going to be looking at. Uh, the, and the, my book actually was judged to be not scandalous enough. And I was famously, uh, my newspaper serialization deal was withdrawn from me. It was taken from my grasp because it was seen as being too fair and too balanced and too kind. I'm slightly well, I proud of that. I hope you've learned your lesson now. That well, I, I think I learned a lot about how the business of newspapers and publishing affected the way that we, all of us, learned the Diana story. Um, and I, that's something I'd really love to talk about when we come to do that show. But I think what's also fascinating is that all these stories we think we know, we don't really know. And there's always something new to say, always new material, always new people to talk to. And always a new, uh, you know, we're still discovering new things about the Second World War. And I think that's one of the fascinating things. And particularly things like the royal family have all had, in some ways, there's been so much deference to them that the real story hasn't really emerged. And that's, I think, I hope what we're going to be trying to do in the podcast, to tell behind the scenes the real story of what happened, drawing on our training as, as investigative journalists, in fact, as well as historians. Well, that's, uh, that's, all, that's absolutely right. Um, and actually, I think we're, I was thinking about it this morning on the way here on the Tube, we're sort of living in a new age of scandals at the moment, and scandals are really affecting the way we live month by month. You know, uh, the scandal of the Downing Street parties was one of the reasons we lost a prime minister. The scandal of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party 
was a reason we lost the leader of the opposition. Um, well, look what happened at the White House at the riots. The, the BBC has been shaken by repeated well, scandals. Jimmy scandals. Savile and Bashir. I think have always been there. I think it just, as you say, needs something to, to, to make people suddenly look at them in new light, new evidence, or suddenly a change of stance by the authorities. Uh, and, you know, I suppose we're learning more about these scandals because people are now more prepared to talk. There are whistleblowers coming forward, documents are being released. And so there are a lot of stories that we thought we knew, as I say, but actually there are many more new things to say. It's funny because if you look at what happened with Jimmy Savile and Martin Bashir, for years and years, people in our business gossiped about this stuff. And there were rumours. And some things were printed, but there was never anything really concrete. And then suddenly, there's a moment of change. In the case of Bashir, somebody finally, a very, very good digging journalist, digging journalist, found real paper evidence of the cover-up, which blew the scandal apart. And I, and I sort of have to say, I wonder, with all your work on Mountbatten, the rumours... The, 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 the small amount that's been printed, perhaps there will become a moment. Maybe the well, story today is part of I that. I hope that is the moment where things change. Um, you, know, it, it, you know, things have to change because we can't go on the way we are. Um, and, yeah, let us hope that, that, that people realise that, you know, to have trust and transparency in our institutions, they have to be open and we have to be able to know our history. You know, we talk a lot about the establishment, and I have to say, when I first met you uh, all those years ago, I, you were definitely the poshest person I'd ever met uh, with my sheltered upbringing in the north. Um, you that's know, why you, I called you Philip. That's why you called me Philip. Only you and my mother ever <laughs> called me Philip. Um, you know, it's funny because I think you're, was it, you're the son of a judge, the grandson of a general, and I think you're a Tory, and I think you're a monarchist, and yet you're probably the most rebellious person against <laughs> the establishment I've ever met. Yeah, well, that's good. I like to be independent and make my own mind up. But we, we, is that the result of the frustration of trying to find out the truth? Yeah, or? I think I'm primarily a historian. I want to find out the truth. I'm used to dealing with documents. And I feel very bullshy if I'm not allowed to, to, to do my research because other people want to paint a different narrative. So... Um, and I've always been interested in history and what humanizes history in some ways uh, are the personalities and the way they behave and the things that they do wrong. Uh, and all my books, I suppose, have a theme of, of the establishment cover-up, um, which is often worse than the initial crime. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, this, in some ways, this is why these series of, of, of chats we're going to have, I think, are so interest me so much, but I think are also so important because it's a really good way into history. Well, I know we'll, or I think we hope to do a whole program on the Martin Bashir story, which is something I know an awful lot about. I know many of the main players. I think we're they also d- hoping that people may have suggestions of things oh, they want to have investigated and we can look at. I'd love to hear that. But when I think of the BBC and the cover-up of what Bashir did, it's a different kind of establishment. You know, it's not posh people in grey suits. No, I think this is the interesting thing. You know, what is in some ways this deep state? Are they people who just want to maintain the status quo for their own um, advancement? You know, who are the people who make these decisions? And this is the problem I find time and time again. They're always anonymous. There's always something called the Knowledge and Management Department. But nothing is signed. There's never a number you can call. And it is, it is feel rather sinister. It's almost as if we're living in, in East Germany. Well, I, I know some of the people who got hurt by the Bashir story, the ones who are described as the malcontents. And they spent nearly 30 years wondering if, indeed, the powers that be were out to get them or whether they were being paranoid. And guess what? It turns out the powers that be were out to get them at the very highest level. Um, and it's a weird because it, it, that sort of establishment was really a mixture of the sort of 
posh people that run the BBC, but also a slightly rougher crowd, a sort of leather jacket crowd who got their foot in the door. And they quite liked the idea that, that the BBC could have people like that inside. Well, it's about power. And I think what we're trying to do in the programme is speak truth to power. That, you know, here you will feel, you will feel that we are prepared to ask the tough questions and to say things that people might not want to hear. Well, that's right. Um, I, I do think that um, the real scandal, actually, of, of what happened, uh, certainly at the BBC, was a reluctance to accept that they'd been wrong and actually a lack of curiosity about how the sausage was made. You know, I spent a bit of time with Steve Hewlett, the editor of Panorama, whose career was really made by that programme. And he was a lovely man, and, and he was much mourned when he died a few years before the scandal broke. But I think he always knew that he hadn't asked the really hard questions of what Bashir was doing. And a good editor, they always tell you this at training courses, a good editor is the story's friend and enemy. You have to ask the really hard questions before you put it to air. And I'm sure you'll be asking me some tough questions about some of my things. But, but also, do you think things have changed? That in some ways people were prepared to, to put their hand up and apologise and to say they got things wrong. But now the, 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 everyone just ploughs on regardless because they don't care about, about things. That they think they can get away with it. I think people do take sides about things perhaps a little bit more. They dig into their ideological trenches. They don't want to give any grounds to their enemies and meet them halfway. Perhaps social media as part of that. Yes, I do think so. And I think it's a slightly more aggressive culture that we're dealing with when we're, as journalists and historians that people won't look at you necessarily as um, uh, an objective truth seeker, which is what we'd all like to be, but as part of some side. And, oh, we can't talk to them because they're allied with so-and-so. I don't oh. like them because look who their friends are. Look what they liked on Facebook. We have no side. We just no, want we to get, get to the not. heart of the story. We do not. And actually, that was certainly my experience of the BBC, which was overwhelmingly positive, I have to say, when I worked there on Panorama and other shows. And indeed, other places I've worked, um, is that most people in our industry do still want to do just that. They want to find things out. They want to unearth uncomfortable truths and and and, and, and get the story straight. Um but I think what you found is that people are less keen to let you sort of analyse the full weight of evidence so that you can capture, in your case, the man in full, warts and all. Well, I think one of the problems is, is I, you know, work in publishing, I think books, against have, again, have that power, like a television, to, to change people's minds and, and open, open their minds to other, other points of view. But I think the problem is, you know, the, the cost of doing this, the risks of libel put people off. And powerful people are able to use the courts and, and other means to, to, to suppress this stuff coming out. And, you know, it's cheaper to, to do a diet book than to, to tell, you know, the truth about something. And I think that that's why, you know, podcasts like ours are, are going to be very important, because this is one of the ways that these stories will be told. Did you feel that you had the support of your peers when your campaign to find out the truth got difficult for you and people started whispering about you? Well, people privately, you know, are very supportive, but no one wants to, to go public. You know, they don't want to jeopardise their own advancement. They, they clearly have their own contacts, which could be jeopardised by this. Uh, and so it's easy to let someone else, for instance, do the heavy lifting. But, you know, we all have to work together because and, and by only, only by cooperating are we able to, to, to actually produce the stories we, we want. I mean, you go to literary festivals and you, you speak at... Um literary gatherings and dinners and the like. Has that dropped off at all since you became a sort of high-profile critic of, um, of, well, I guess the royal and the government 
refusal to let no, you have access to no, papers. No, not absolutely the opposite. People come up to you at the end of these talks and, and say, good on you, and, and we support you, and, and we wish more people did this. Uh, and there is a belief that you know we, we aren't getting the full picture, uh, and there, are, in some ways, there are two competing narratives here, the, the, the one that's curated by the so-called establishment and, and, and the reality. So, no, I mean, it tends to be other historians who, who, who just want a quiet life. But I think people are generally very supportive, and I hope that will be the case that, you know, with our series of, of talks, people will feel that we're making some sort of contribution as well as being fun and, and, and uh, I hope, opening their eyes to all sorts of new stories. Yes, and all sorts of silly photographs from the 1980s. Yep. Plenty of those. Um, well, I think that's probably enough to give people a sense of what we're about. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this. I'm particularly looking forward to all the ones on World War II, um, so I can uh, dig into some of the work I've done on that, and, and of course the royal stories that we're going to do, um, and maybe even sneak in a bit of Emma Hamilton. Yes, we can go about that. A little far. bit of 18th century stories scandal. Well, Scandals drive the world. They make change. I mean, the, I extraordinary, the extraordinary stuff I, I, thing is that there's still files on Queen Victoria which are held They're not. held back. Um, Why? To do with well, her daughter and possibly secret pregnancies and... All the stuff is, is, is there to be found and to be discussed. So there's a whole new world of adventure coming There out. is, well, unless we're dragged off to the tower between now and then, I shall look forward to exploring that world with you, Andrew. Me too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.